my first year of grad school, I took a class on forms. Uh, these were uh, prosodic forms, um, forms in, in meter. Uh, we studied everything you would expect. We studied uh, Anglo-Saxon hemistics. We studied uh, syllabics. We studied you know, monometer, dimeter, trimeter, tetrameter, pentameter, heroic couplets, heroic quatrains, uh, tersarima, um, the rubiat stanzas, sonnets, sestinas, villanelles, uh, guzzles. Ugh, I fucking, I've never looked at guzzle. I, um, <sighs> uh, we, we studied all, all the obvious forms and we got into some more obscure ones. Um, and, uh, one particular day, I remember very specifically, we were studying the pantoon. Um, that is, uh, not the pantoum, very repetitious, uh, French form, but it's Malay predecessor, the pantoon with an N at the end. Um, which is uh, just one quatrain in which it has the same um, basic uh, rhyme scheme as the pantoum, um, ABAB. Sometimes it's ABXB, I think, but uh, it's, it's just the one quatrain and it's made up of two separate sentences. One sentence uh, occupies the first two lines and another sentence occupies the, the next two. And apart from some sort of wordplay and the cross rhyme, these two sentences have nothing to do with each other. They're, they're independent. It's a little bit like a, a, um, a haiku. It's just a juxtaposition of these two things next to each other that, you know, when you read them and maybe think about them, and um, they start to reveal what it is that they, they really have in common. Maybe. Who knows? There are very few of these in English. Uh, we were reading um, John Hollander's uh, Kinneret, which is um, a sort of a chain of pantoons. Um, I remember so clearly which extremely obscure form we were studying and even which poem we were reading that day, because in the middle of uh, reading this poem aloud, uh, we heard a scream from the hallway. Uh, now, this was winter. It was, uh, I think there was a little bit of snow that day, um, just sort of some flurries, but it was already, there's already a lot of ice and slush on the ground. And we were studying in the oldest building on campus. At that point, it was, it was probably a little over a hundred years old. Uh, and some of the stairs, especially in the lower part of the building were marble. Uh, these were very old, like the building itself, and had seen a lot of foot traffic. And they, they, were, they were so old that you could actually see grooves from where, you know, feet had stepped on them year after year after year uh, and continue to. And of course, when you have feet in the middle of winter, uh, stepping up and down, you know, grooved, slick marble steps, uh, you know, bringing in... Uh, ice and snow from outside, uh, you very quickly get a pretty nasty slipping hazard. So we ran out into the hall and a middle-aged woman, who's probably about 50, was lying on the floor beside the stairs. She had fallen and uh, she believed she'd broken her arm. Um, so she was lying on the ground. She did not feel 
uh, up to moving around. Um, she, you know, wasn't clear uh, what else she might have injured. Um, so, you know, of course, we uh, called an ambulance. Uh, somebody brought her some water. Um, since she didn't want to get up, we you know brought a sweatshirt to put under her head. And, uh, you know, most of us sort of milled around wishing for something useful to do. Finally, I ended up running outside to wave in the, the EMT to make sure he found the right spot. Uh, so the EMT came in. He brought a backboard, but he was alone. His partner was en route. Uh, and because he very reasonably wouldn't let any of us <laughs> step in to help, um, he uh, was unable to move her. So so he was there with her. She was as, as taken care of as she could be for the circumstances. The other EMT was on the way. But she was still moaning in the hallway, um, also very understandably. And so, you know, our professor adjourned the class until she was able to, to get um, uh, get into the, the ambulance and, and, and drive off to get some medical care. And this is such a just ostentatiously, theatrically <laughs> allegorical uh, situation that, that just so almost embarrassingly begs for some overeager grad student to write a cleverly structured, say, pantoon about these two things happening at once. Um, that, you know, for a long time, I think I, I really read this incident as a kind of a damning proof of the uselessness and stupidity of poetry. Um, the, the school where we were getting our, uh, our indeed pretty useless degrees um, was more famous, still more famous for its medical school than for its, its writing department, um, rightly so. Uh, so there was, you know, very a very strong feeling that, uh, you know, we could very well be doing something that would help our fellow, you know, man, rather than just indulging in these silly little schemes, um, these silly little decorations that really serve no purpose and and um, and achieve nothing. And you know, as time went on, I I started to interpret the day a little differently. I started to think, well, there was a woman screaming in the hallway that day, and it was it was the hallway of our building, and we went out and did what we could. But, you know, in some sense, there's always a woman screaming in the hallway. There's always some house on fire somewhere. There's always some, some terrible, urgent need. And, you know, not all of us, uh, you know, devote our lives to satisfying those urgent needs. Some of us uh, devote our lives to satisfying sort of deeper more spiritual or abstract needs. And so I, you know, I thought of the, 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 um, that image of the woman, uh, interrupting the poetry class with this, this urgent physical need as, a as a kind of a model of the, the, these two kinds of human needs and these two kinds of labor to, to satisfy those needs. And, um, it's really been more recently as I look back on this odd little memory, um, this poor suffering woman and this question of the, the virtue or, uh, or, or deficiency of poetry. And, um, and it's really, as I said, it's only recently that it's, it's begun to occur to me that this day 
and this event that I remember so clearly had fucking nothing at all to do with poetry. It had nothing to do with poetry. What it really had to do with was what the fuck was the school doing leaving these slick marble stairs with these grooves dug in them over the years to fill up with ice and slush throughout the winter when it was the most predictable thing in the world that somebody was going to slip and fall and fucking break her arm. Why didn't the school do something about these steps? This is a story about steps and administrative negligence. This is not a story about poetry. I think that if we were taking a French pastry class or a blues guitar class or a documentary filmmaking class, we wouldn't say to ourselves, oh, well, you know, we, we our, our, you know, pan au chocolat is really failing to uh, satisfy the, 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 you know, the moral demands of our, uh, our intellectual gifts. Um, we would say, well, this is terrible. We would do exactly what we did, call a fucking ambulance. And then we would say, well, where the fuck was the school? And so, you know, uh, uh, today, when I think about that poor woman, I hope she got some uh, very strong drugs at the hospital. I hope she made a full recovery. Um, I hope she got herself a very good lawyer. And I kind of hope she took the school to the fucking cleaners. Buckley Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets, a podcast about poetry and other intractable problems. There's a problem I've been chewing over for the last few months. I wrote a book review. Uh, it was a, a, a review of a book of poetry, a good poet, a good book, uh, and I gave it a good review. I just had one qualm. And I did my best to address it in the review. I don't think it was, you know, I don't think I quite got it just perfect. So I've still been thinking about it. And so the way I, I, I put my, um, my objection in the review was to say that uh, there, so there were a number of poems in the book that uh, conveyed or expressed a misanthropic feeling, um, which is what you would expect from any respectable uh, malediction, um, as as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, this is a you know a, a a common kind of human feeling and a perfectly um, uh, acceptable and um, often very juicy subject for a lyric poem. Um, to help other people feel what it feels like when you have that kind of rage or fury or sorrow or resentment or whatever it is. Um, so that's just fine. That's why I have no objections to maledictions. But then other poems in this book seemed to do, they, they did something slightly different. And the way I put it in the review is I, they, they asserted a misanthropic belief. And that was about as far as I could get in figuring out what I thought about this. I, you know, I, I 
think I said, uh, you know, it's sort of, it sours a little bit when I read that. Um, it's one thing to say, I, uh, uh, oh, this particular person is horrible and I really dislike her. It's another thing to say like this, this kind of person is sort of objectively awful. Um, but as I said, it was a, it was a clumsy, only sort of fuzzily articulated objection. And I, I couldn't get much further than that. And I don't, you know, I don't want to make a big um, to do about it because I think it is, it was a, it was a very good book and a very good poet, but that was the sort of problem that I had. And in, in thinking about it since then, I've come to suspect that what really bothered me was not even so much that the, the poems were asserting a belief I disagreed with or a belief that I found sort of to be um, derogatory or, or um, belittling uh, of, a, of a group. It was more that it was asserting a belief at all, I guess. Um, and this is really the, this problem that I, that I have and that I, um, I have long had and have never fully figured out about morals, art and morals. And, you know, part of my objection to art that teaches a lesson is that it's uh, square and boring and um, small in contrast to, to some of the other possibilities. But, but the other objection is that it, it almost without fail doesn't actually teach the lesson. You know, my, my daughter is just now encountering this uh, for the first time. She uh, was watching a Christmas movie the other day. I have no fucking idea why. She was watching a Christmas movie the other day and she said, uh, it was, oh, when, it was, when it was over, she said, oh, daddy, um, this uh, movie teaches you that Christmas is not about presents. It's really about being with the people that you love. And I bit my tongue a little bit uh, and tried to figure out the least insufferable way to um, answer that. I think I, I, I praised her articulateness um, and then asked something like, uh, so before you saw this movie, did you think Christmas was about presents? And she kind of gave me a sidelong, suspicious glance, rightfully suspicious, and said, no, I knew it was about being with the people you love, uh, which is exactly the right answer. Um, and which, by the way, is just completely false. That Christmas, Christmas in this country, there, maybe there is hypothetically a version of a Christian holiday in a presumably more tight-knit and uh, devout community that really focuses on the birth of Christ and the, the sort of social communion and uh, this you know long tradition over the, the centuries. Maybe it's possible that in some places and sometimes Christmas is about 
being with those you love and is about um, uh, the, the birth of the Savior or something along these lines. But in this country, it's about presence. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing, but if you are a little kid in this country, particularly in the sort of vaguely secular household where once a year, your parents, whom you presumably trust, tell you that a magical man appears in your house, fills it with presents for you and your sister, disappears and doesn't come back until next year, then that day is about presents. And if you don't think so, then you're fucking out of your mind. Christmas is about presents. Again, my favorite part of Christmas is the Christmas tree, but Christmas is not about Christmas trees. It's about presents. But um, as I said, my, my daughter had learned her line very well from the movie. Told me, of course, she knew that Christmas was about being with the ones you love. And so, I, you know, my follow-up question was, all right, um, then uh, what did this movie teach you? If you already knew that Christmas is about being with the ones you love, then what did it teach you? And of course, it didn't teach her a goddamn thing. Um, I, I, I hesitate to... Um, all right, very briefly... Uh, I, I have this, this sort of unified field theory of Hollywood m movies, of Hollywood, uh, the um, messages embedded in Hollywood movies and the, the, the perennial message that, you know, don't, you shouldn't work so hard, you should, but you should also follow your dreams. You should not worry about material things, but you should, uh, you know, dream big and reach for the stars and escape from your small town and believe in yourself and... Uh, and not, you know, not get caught up in, in money, not get caught up in prestige, uh, but just do, you know, do what you love. Um, my theory is that this is actually not just a bunch of touchy-feely, mushy, phony baloney, new agey nonsense. This is actually very specific and uh, materially informed uh, propaganda that is serving uh, specifically Hollywood's own ends, because what I guess what I would really say is that every Hollywood movie is truly fundamentally about um, uh, how everybody should go, especially ambitious young people, creative young people, attractive young people should go and uh, work with no expectation of any kind of material remuneration for uh, the, um, the entertainment industry, uh, and devote their lives to it in hopes of, uh, eventually, um, uh, being, uh, being selected by the powers that be. Um, the reason that United, the United States, uh, the pop culture in the United States dominates the world is that we have, our pop culture, uh, has a, a bigger and fatter subsidy than the pop culture of any other country in the world. And that subsidy is not a government subsidy. It's a subsidy of scores of millions of young people uh, working for free to be able to uh, get just the opportunity to offer their services at, you know, uh, uh, for peanuts to, um, to the entertainment industry. That's my, my brief spiel on Hollywood. But... Uh, when it comes to Christmas, no, the, the, the movie doesn't teach your seven-year-old anything about Christmas. And, you know, I, I have a sort of a similar feeling about, um, conversations I, you know, I used to have with my, 
uh, English major friends who were very fond of pointing out to me things like, um, you know, in The Road Not Taken, Frost isn't really saying that uh, it, he, he's, he, he's glad he took the road less traveled. He's really saying almost the opposite of that. You know, in Mending Wall, he's not really saying good fences make good neighbors. He's really saying good fences make bad neighbors. And um, Odin and Grishner and Keats isn't really saying truth is beauty, beauty is truth. He's saying the opposite of that in, in um, An Arundel Tomb. Larkin is not really saying what will survive of us is love. He's saying uh, you'd have to be a fool to understand that, but maybe, to, to believe that, but maybe you're an understandable fool. In Pierre Menard, Borges, they probably didn't read Pierre Menard. I, it was a, a, um, I think it was a complet major who gave me the spiel on Pierre Menard. But he said, you know, in Pierre Menard, uh, um, au contraire, Matthew, in Pierre Menard, uh, author of the Quixote, Borges um, is not really saying that uh, Pierre Menard's fictitious verbatim um, reproduction of uh, Don Quixote is, is actually infinitely richer than Cervantes' original. What he's actually saying is that, you you know, the kind of person who would say this is a postmodern fuck fool. Um, in, uh, you know, uh, in Hamlet, Shakespeare isn't really saying neither a borrower nor a lender be. Um, he's saying, Polon you know, all of this is, is not good advice. It's actually bad advice because Polonius is a fool and a hypocrite. Um, and so on and so on. And it's not that I think those are all wrong opinions. It's just that reading those works, I, I, I sort of came away feeling equally uncomfortable either with the uh, unconsidered face value interpretation. Oh, oh, beauty is truth, truth is beauty. I felt equally uncomfortable with that and with the contrarian informed English major interpretation. And, um, you know, partly it's about this problem of art just not being very good at teaching lessons. Um, you know, even Horace, who, who tells us in the Ars Poetica that, that poetry should delight and instruct, even Horace um, tends not very often actually to instruct us very much. I mean, mostly... <laughs> He, he has he has lessons for us he has mottos for us I mean say 111 um, in which he he uh, recommends that we seize the day or pluck the day carpe diem um, he he gives that's a that's a um, an imperative he gives us a, a command a, a piece of advice but it's not it's I mean, it's hardly new and as with all of his poems you know the 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 actual wisdom is pretty shopworn, and the the effect, the power, of the poem, um, as we saw with the Cleopatra poem even the other day, uh, is in the experience of, of sort of hearing this speaker. You know, in, in one eleven, it's a it's a very quiet poem. Um, it's not really much of a YOLO poem. Um, uh, you know, the images are more about, you know, trimming your vines and kind of tending to this, uh, this small, this, you know, this little plot of, uh, of life that surrounds you and not to, uh, you know, to um, make too many long-term <laughs> wagers. Uh, but really, the, you know, what's moving about the poem is listening to a friend 
attempt to um, offer some advice and consola consolation to uh, a, a, you know somebody that he cares about on a, in in addressing a problem that has no real solution. So you know, part of my problem with all of these questions of, of instruction or of morals is that I just don't think morals very often get taught in art, whether or not they should. But then the other part of it is that it's not just that the morals don't get taught, it's that something else is available there. You know, as with Freud, you know, I've only read four or five of his books, and I would say none of them ha has a moral that I would say, oh, that's the thing. Definitely remember that. Um, but listening to the way that he thinks, the way that he writes, the way that he links ideas. And then these poems, um, The Road Not Taken, Mending Wall, Odin of Grecian Urn, which is you know, maybe my very favorite poem, On a Rundle Tomb. Pierre Menard's a short story, and Polonius' speech obviously appears in a play. It's a verse play. Um, but the, you know, Polonius is not, uh, he is a fool, and he is a hypocrite. And he does give some bad advice, and he gives some self-contradictory advice. But he also gives some pretty good advice. You know, neither a barber nor a lender beef where loan off loses both itself and friend. That's pretty true. Because Polonius is is, is uh, manipulative and conniving and uh, uh, foolish and prideful, but he's also a loving father. And he's also an old man who's seen some things. Um, you know, The Road Not Taken is a poem in which of course, uh, it is just unbearable to hear a um, uh, a uh, smug uh, uh, science professor give a give a speech about taking the road less traveled, um, uh, pandering to the uh, to the humanities people by misreading or even failing at all to to get all the way through a poem that uh, she thinks she's going to use to instruct us. That's pretty unbearable, but. You know, it's not as simple as saying Frost regrets his choice. And he longs for the road not taken. It, it's it's both and. It's um. It's not a lesson. It's not an argument. It's not a belief. It's a speech. I think of you know there are few. I tried to find some kind of like straightforward examples to maybe hammer out this problem. Because this was really what I started to come back to in that book review. There was a kind of a solution that I came to. It was provisional. And as I said, the book review is uh, flawed. But the what I found, there was one poem in particular, um, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes because it is a good poem. It's a very smart poem. Um, there was one poem in particular in which the poet uh, made a very strong art. It was basically it was a piece of rhetoric. And the argument was those who commit suicide should be condemned and especially poets who commit suicide and uh, other poets should never write poems um, praising the lives of those who whose lives ended with suicide. Um, and that, that, you know, this particular argument really rubbed me the wrong way. But setting aside whether or not I agreed with it, I think it, it, what I found is that there was a much richer way to read the poem. Um, and this is as a dramatic monologue. 
You know, it's a, that this was a sonnet, but and I find with lyric poems that present an argument that that teach a lesson, that that um, assert a moral belief, uh, very often, though they may fail as rhetoric, they may fail as instruction. They don't necessarily convince or instruct or teach anybody anything. They often succeed as you know, something like a dramatic monologue, which is to say, you know, if you put the whole thing in quotation marks, suddenly it, it rings out a little differently. You know, when I didn't read this poem simply as the poet, uh, um, frowning upon, uh, those who might commemorate, you know, the, those you know poets who killed themselves, um, and and you know saying that this was a, a, a waste and a, um, this uh, there was solipsism and uh, we should look down on these people and not praise them. When I stopped looking at it as the poet saying these things and started just listening to a voice saying these things, I could hear the poem in a different light. Not that the argument was any more convincing but that I stopped hearing so much the moral belief and I started hearing the experience, the perspective of the speaker. Um, I think a, 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 a so um, one poem that when I was a kid, I was taught as a just absolutely straightforward um, uh, uh, statement. Um, a, a, an assertion of truth is uh, John Donne's Holy Sonnet number 10. I love Donne. He's, you know, his poems are often extremely um, complex and unified conceits. This is not. This is a poem I... It's hard to dismiss, but it's also hard to embrace, or I have found it hard to embrace until really recently, you know, coming back to it in a different light. So this is Death Be Not Proud. Um, I'll just read it very quickly through uh, and then talk briefly about it. Um, Holy Sonnet number 10 by John Donne. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure. Then from thee much more must flow. And soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and souls' delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppy or charms can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke. Why swell'st thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Unlike, uh, I'm recording another episode at the same time, and I, I actually talk a little bit in that one about um, his valediction forbidding morning, and that is a um, uh, is a it contains a more thoroughly drawn out um, metaphor in it. This one is really a kind of a series of wild grasps at argument. Um, uh, Hey, death, 
yeah, people think that you're a big deal, but, but I think you're not. Um, and I think that even when people, you kill people, they don't really die. And cause, Hey, besides, uh, when people are sleeping or just resting their eyes, they look like they're dead, but actually they're not. And so maybe, um, and you know, when we're sleeping, we enjoy that. So why should we be afraid of you? And, um, uh, and also only the good die young and, um, uh, and you know, random shit happens that determines when people die and, and you don't get to do that. And so maybe you're not so powerful or important. And also you keep really nasty company and, uh, Hey, drugs are kind of like, uh, you know, sleep and, uh, death. And so, uh, you're not so special. Um, oh, and, and by the way, even if we do die, then, uh, guess what? We're going to wake up and then we'll be alive again. And then death, you're going to die. So this is not as a piece of rhetoric. Uh, this doesn't command a lot of uh, confidence. I mean, th this is not a, a rousing, inspiring, or uh, dispositive case that he makes against death. Uh, it, it, it actually sounds to my ear a little bit desperate. And, you know, if I read this as John Donne's argument about death, then I have to say, you know, either I believe that uh, there's life after death, in which case, um, yeah, all right, sure, uh, this is this is basically fine, but it's not like it convinces me. Or if I don't believe in life after death, I say, well, uh, this is not an especially elegant <laughs> argument for uh, for life after death, but uh, I don't believe in it anyway, and so you still haven't convinced me. So, you know, I think, I think as a piece of rhetoric, as a, as a lesson or moral teaching device, it's kind of hopeless. But as a speech, if we imagine instead the person who feels the need to say these things, if he really fully believed in this, then he might not, it might not be, there might not be such a, such an itchy sense of urgency here. There might not be such a, a jittery willingness to leap from one, uh, strategy to another, you know, uh, I, I, I had a fever and also my dog ate my homework and also my car broke down. Um, but listening to a man who either because of his own fear of his own death or fear of, of someone else's death or fear or sorrow at a death that's already occurred. This speech is, is suddenly quite touching. It rings very true, not because the statements that it makes are true, but because it is the way people think and feel and speak. Um, it is, uh, it, it has great fidelity uh, not to fact, but to feeling. Uh, another poem that I was taught as, uh, as just a, a um, basically as the rake's progress as a kid was We Real Cool. This is Gwendolyn Brooks, The Pool Player's Seven of the Golden Shovel. Um, and this actually is a monologue. I mean, this, this is spoken in a collective voice, but it's, this is spoken in the plural first person, and yet it tends to be taught as a kind of, um, as a behavioral math equation. We real cool, we left school, we 
lurk late, we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz June, we die soon. That we die soon, I was taught as a kid when I, we read this in school, was simply the, the natural outcome of these bad choices that these bad boys made in skipping school and, and uh, you know, smoking cigarettes and drinking and playing pool instead of obeying their parents and, and doing their homework. Um, and, you know, whether that, whether or not that was what Gwendolyn Brooks had in mind, I, I very much am of the mind that the author's intention matters a lot less than the, than the ultimate effect of the poem. But I, I, I suspect that was not what she had in mind exclusively. But, uh, but whether it was or not, um, there's not a student in the world who's going to, there's not a kid in the world who's going to learn anything from that except what my daughter learned, which is what you're supposed to say. Christmas is not about presents. Um, we, we should not sing sin and thin gin. Uh, we should not jazz June. We, we should, we should go back to math class. But if instead we try to imagine the voice of the young men who would say, uh, who would say all of these things, all of them. The same people who would say we real cool also say we die soon. If we imagine for a minute that um, that this is not the rake's progress, that this is not you know merely an end of life regret looking back on all of the excesses of one's earlier days, but instead if, if we imagine the voice that would speak both of these lines and see no contradiction in them, maybe we can imagine that the causality goes the other way. Maybe they're doing all of these things because they will believe they will die soon or know they will die soon. Um, maybe there's some sort of despair here, or maybe this is a, maybe this is a Horace 111. There are a lot of different possibilities, none of which really have very much to do with instructing the reader morally, all of which have to do with evoking an experience by way of a voice. Um, even something like to the virgins to make much of time. Gather ye, ro gather ye rosebuds while ye may um, is a uh, is far more interesting if you read it not as a as a a very jaunty and uh, cleverly constructed piece of advice to young women, but um, but as a case made by a particular kind of speaker with his own interests and maybe his own regrets and his own insecurities. That age is best, which is the first, when youth and blood are warmer. That's a line that I, you know, to me, when I hear that line, I never, I never hear that line so much as a, as a finger wagged at the young women, so much as I hear it as a, as a reflection on the speaker's own life. It's a kind of a, a, a little moment of poignancy and recognition. Um, and this is, you know, this is the same feeling I have about every time there's some argument about um, uh, it has become fashionable to shit on the giving tree because the depiction of a mother who sacrifices literally her entire life for her son is just an apple picking, tree climbing, boat building piece of shit who does not 
give to uh, fucks about her um, and just takes everything. And not only does he take everything from her, does he cut down her trunk, <laughs> carry it away. But uh, not only does he not thank her, but he does, it doesn't even make him happy. It doesn't even work. You know, and this, this depiction of motherhood as this ultimate, you know, absolute self-sacrifice that ends with this woman, um, this tree, uh, reduced to a stump, but but very proud in her ability to provide a, a, a stool to her decrepit and uh, still absolutely worthless uh, boy. So yeah, if the giving tree were telling you that that's what you should do, that what motherhood ought to be, that would be fucking horrible. <laughs> that would be a terrible look. But it's not doing that at all. Uh, it's just saying, this is what motherhood is like. It's just what it actually is like. And if you read that book, you know, the last line of the book is, um, and the tree was happy. My fucking three-year-old, when we finish reading that book, she loves that book. Every time we finish it, we get to the end of the, <laughs> we get to the, end of the book, I say, and the tree was happy. And she says, but not really, <laughs> because she understands. <laughs> no, I don't think, you know, I, I think it's, it's actually quite a wonderful children's book, the same way that um, Baby It's Cold Outside is a great Christmas song. It's a great Christmas song. Uh, does it present what is pretty alarmingly a case of something that seems very much like date rape? Oh yeah, oh definitely. But again, it, it's not making a case for date rape. It's not saying this is how people ought to behave. It's saying this is how people do behave. And all of the little winking ambivalence in the female voice, the female part, all those things that make us uncomfortable when we think, well, is there, ah, this, what is this condoning? What is this encouraging? What is this normalizing? Th all of that ambivalence, all of those little, those little subtle touches, if we read them, you know, as moral statements, then they're horrible. But they're not moral statements. They're just dramatizations of human experience. That is what people are like. It rings true. Um, the same goes, by the way, I would say, for the epilogue to crime and punishment, which uh, is so so famously and widely hated that you know even the edition I read had a whole section devoted in the introduction to why the epilogue was bad. <laughs> um, and I think that's fucking bullshit. I think that's exactly wrong. Uh, yeah, it is. Is it a little bit anticlimactic for Raskolnikov, who spends this whole uh, you know, pulse-pounding, claustrophobic rat trap of a book um, trying to get away with murder while also, you know, uh, fighting his own worst instincts and ultimately, you know, failing to prevent himself uh, from, you know, giving up the game, uh, you know, in a, in a moment of, you know, that's, it's, it's, he seems to feel relief, but boy, it doesn't seem at all clear that that uh, exactly what was his choice and what wasn't. Um, but yeah, is it a little bit uh, anticlimactic to see this sort of ferocious, uh, violent, cunning character um, go to prison and then 
decide that all he really needs is to convert to Christianity or to, you know, to, to be sort of born again, so to speak, and to, to devote his life to Christ. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of, that's kind of, uh, anticlimactic. I don't think it's, um, I, I can't say it's disappointing because it's, <laughs> I don't know what my expectations for Raskolnikov were as a, as a character. Um, uh, but it's, you know, I don't think that the epilogue is about, is a, is a statement that this is what should happen. I think it's a, it's a, a depiction of what does happen. Somebody with Raskolnikov's paranoia, Raskolnikov's, uh, you know, just leg-chewing introspection and inability to escape from his own mind, somebody with his sense of duty uh, and his desperate need for meaning in his life to assert himself as being in some way relevant to existence, to the universe, that mind would absolutely become a devout Christian in prison. Why would he not? But again, it rings true. It rings true. So I was all set to sort of conclude this episode by saying, you know, every poem is a dramatic monologue. Uh, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. By Emily Dickinson, McLeish's Ars Poetica, that I, I, um, I railed against in an earlier episode. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe that's really a, you know, a dramatic monologue about a man sort of struggling to articulate his feelings about poetry. Delcate de Cormest, Wilfred Owen, uh, September 1st, 1939. Do not go gentle into that good night. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I, uh, um, I, I think I mentioned earlier that I, there, I, I published a poem um, that I'm very ambivalent about uh, uh, called Creed for Atheists that I think, you know, is a, it's a piece of rhetoric. And if you could read it as a dramatic monologue, I think it would probably be a better poem. It would be more of a lyric poem. I was all set just to say, all right, all poems are dramatic monologues and reading them that way, putting them in that additional layer of quotation marks only uh, allows for them to be, only allows for richer possibilities. I was all set. And then I remembered my run-in. Oh man, I have put off talking about this shit. There is this belief among, it's, I think it's less in fashion now, but there was for a long time a belief that uh, people who wrote in meter and rhyme were uh, paleoconservative um, Neanderthals, were, um, were socially, politically uh, odious um, right-wing fanatics. And that's not true. You know, all, the overwhelming majority, as I've said before, the overwhelming majority of the formal poets I know um, are like all, all poets and artists, uh, vaguely, often sort of lazily, but genuinely lefty, liberal, progressive, etc. Uh, but there is an extremely small portion of formal poets, of uh, <laughs> severely formal poets, who are 
uh, not just paleoconservatives, not just extreme right-wing fanatics, but uh, actual white supremacists and, and even neo-Nazis. Uh, so several years ago, I got a very nice handwritten cursive on stationary letter from a guy living up north and it was a very thoughtful letter he said he had read some poems of mine in a magazine and he admired them and he invited me to send some poems to his magazine so i looked up his magazine it was a teeny tiny little thing i could only find a few um you know some table table of contents with it with a handful of available poems online it looked it looked sort of dry and uh obscure like a lot of formal magazines are um, there were a handful of poets on there i recognized and admired from you know from formal circles um i i asked around a little bit um and the you know my editor uh at the time said oh well you know he they he's um he's a controversial figure but you know you send him something or don't it's up to you i knew that he had had some uh feuds with uh quincy lair who's a, a formal poet i knew a little bit i personally i've always known quincy to be a lovely uh man and a fine poet um he's also i think he would say has has in the past <laughs> had a somewhat has a, had a reputation as something of a pugilist online and so the idea that he had gotten into a a um a facebook scuffle or two with this guy seemed not like uh, especially salient information. Um, so uh, I, I sent, um, you know, based on those, based on you know what I was able to find out by asking around and based on the names of the people who had already published in the magazine, I sent, I sent some poems to the guy. He uh, uh, wrote back pretty promptly, which is, which is again, which is rare and, and nice. It's nice to get a letter from somebody admiring your work and soliciting your work. Uh, and he, he took one poem, um, he told me, and this, well, I won't say that it didn't raise a red flag, I'll just say it, uh, it didn't raise the right kind of red flag, but he rejected the, the four or so poems that, that, I, that he didn't take. He took one and he rejected the rest. And he, he told me he was rejecting them because they employed they're, they're, they were all in meter, um, and most of them were in rhyme as well. Uh, they, the, the ones he rejected had employed metrical substitutions, uh, which is, um, it is hard to convey what, <laughs> what um, would be, what's comparable to metrical substitutions in this case this is this is not like saying uh you know your um the the sleeves of the uh pants that you hemmed were were close but they weren't exactly their same length this isn't this isn't a an inexactitude this isn't a a little sloppiness this isn't you know a lack of polish <laughs> there aren't metrical I mean <laughs> uh, I mean this would almost be like saying 
you know, uh, I noticed that your novel, the, the, the pages in your novel didn't all have exactly the same number of words on them. Um, I mean, this is a, uh, a bizarre, a bizarre um, criterion. Uh, and one that, by the way, you know, at least if your novel, if maybe if every single page in your novel had 500 words on it, that would be strange, but it wouldn't particularly affect the experience of reading the novel. Whereas a poem written with no metrical substitutions, unless it was written in a, a few specific uh, um, quantitative metrical styles, like the one poem that he did take, would sound pretty uh, unbearable. It would be a, a relentless oompa oompa. Um, so the idea that you don't use metrical substitutions is just bananas. But I think he didn't. I think he didn't accept caesuras either, which is also insane, <laughs> insane. But again, I thought he's an eccentric. All right, fine. He took the one poem. Um, the uh, the issue with my poem came out online and. Online, only some, as with the previous issues, and as is true for most issues of most magazines, you see, uh, only some poems were visible online. When I got my, I think I had two complimentary issues. I think I've thrown them both out by now. Um, I was uh, horrified to find that in addition to some innocuous formal poems by some names I recognized, though, interestingly, none of the people whose names I had recognized from previous issues seemed to appear in more than one issue for reasons that became immediately clear to me, uh, because presumably the exact same thing had happened to them. Um, in addition to the typical fare that you'd find in any given formal formalist magazine, um, sans metrical substitutions, I guess. There were also uh, some poems that were, uh, I hesitate to say racist, not because they were not racist, but because I fear that that word does not adequately convey the viciousness and violence of these poems. Um, they were racist-like, crude, uh, crude racist 1930s propaganda is racist. Um, uh, I mean, absolutely horrifying. Um, in addition to which, there were uh, excerpted sections from Lothrop Stoddard's books. Um, and if you don't know who Lothrop Stoddard is. There was a decent article in the New Yorker uh, a year or so ago about um, a public debate that Lothrop Stoddard did with W.E.B. Du Bois um, uh, on uh, the, the question of race. Lothrop Stoddard was a, um, a maniacal racist and W.E. Du Bois uh, unsurprisingly mopped the floor with him. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, needless to say, I was, I was totally appalled by what I'd found and, uh, and was, was appalled in a, in a different way by the introductory note that this editor had put at the front of the magazine, which was, um, 
you know, he, he commented on some of the poems inside, uh, but but his his main argument seemed to be what mattered, what counted, was that uh, he had not he had turned an absolute blind eye to the content of all of the poems, of all of the work, that he cared only for craft, only for wit and skill and polish, and that he he was an absolutely um, agnostic about all value and argument and content. And uh, this claim was, of course, totally belied by his inclusion of Lothrop fucking Stoddard, uh, who presumably had not submitted to this magazine from beyond the grave. Uh, but it also makes me hesitate now in my suggestion that every poem can be a dramatic monologue because, you know, you, you didn't matter how many sets of quotation marks you put around some of these poems, uh, they would be beyond the pale. So, I, by the way, I've, I've gone back and forth about this and for the same reason that I, I've sort of quietly spoken to people one-on-one -on -one about this magazine, I have not made any kind of public statement about them Obviously, I haven't had anything to do with them since then, but um, I haven't made any kind of public statement about them because they're pretty obscure. And I actually think the magazine is now defunct. And uh, the the guy who runs it is is um, is very active online and and seeks attention. So I, I think I think it's probably best to um, just to, to deprive that one of oxygen. But uh, if you get a strange, uh, very fancy handwritten solicitation letter from a magazine and you want to check with me about which one it is, feel free to write. Um, but yeah, so that leaves me then uh, ambivalent about my conclusion. I don't think that every poem can be a dramatic monologue. Maybe I just think that uh, these, these, um, these magical quotation marks that I put around the, the poem in this book review, I put around my own poem in retrospect, that I put around Holy Sonnet number 10 and various others, you know, maybe, um, maybe I just think that's a, a potentially useful tool. And for now, I will leave it at that. So I'm gonna read a few short things this week. Uh, I, I did a, um, a show a couple weeks ago about maledictions, and I got an interesting uh, response from Brian Platzer, who's a novelist and uh, a frequent uh, contributor to The Atlantic. He sent me a very, very short story by Dave Eggers that he, he said reminded him of the Steve Scafidi uh, poem that I ended the episode with, uh, to whoever set my truck on fire. Uh, and then I read this, uh, Dave Eggers story and it sent me to a couple of other things. So I'm just going to read all three. They're all pretty short. I'm going to read them all three. Um, so I think they all are, uh, 
they're all similar and they are uh, they're relevant to this week's topic um, partly in that they, they all take up uh, the perspective of a character who is initially pretty sympathetic and then they uh, unwind that initial sympathy into something more more complicated. Um, you know, the, a, a thought that occurred to me, and I may, may come back and do an episode on like uh, the well-wrought urn or something at some point, but the, you know, it, it occurs to me that the the whole quotation marks thing I brought up might seem like just sort of another version of the new critics um, emphasis on irony, uh, particularly Brooks and Warren. And certainly I'm, I am a great uh, admirer of their work and I'm very interested in irony in, uh, in poems. But I think what I'm, at least what I'm trying to get at is, is not limited to irony. So I'm not just interested in the poems in which the, the, a meaning presents it both itself and its opposite. But poems in which the meaning or the belief or the moral is complicated by the perspective of a person rather than just a, an argument. Um, that is that, you know, a, a, an argument is a different thing when it's presented in sort of flat logical terms than it is when it is presented in the uh, person of somebody who wants things and is ashamed of things and fears things and loves things and people. So, uh, you know, that said, I'm, uh, I think all three of these um, certainly have a little bit of irony in them, but, but, uh, but even more so reveal the, the difficulty of nailing down the right and the wrong of a, of a given uh, situation um, because of the complexity of character. I think of characters being a little bit like, uh, you know, the, the, the sphere emerging into uh, a plane of Euclidean geometry. You know, it's impossible to have a triangle that consists entirely of right angles except uh, on a sphere you know on a flat surface it's impossible but on a sphere it's entirely possible and that's i think how a little bit how i think of character so um with that i'm just going to uh, start by quickly reading this this is um dave eggers this is uh, this ran originally in the guardian uh in uh, on friday 18th friday the 18th of june in 2004. Uh, this is called woman waits seething blooming by Dave Eggers. She is a single mom and has no interest in any men but her son, who is 15 and has not called. It is 2.33 a.m. and he hasn't phoned since 5.40 that evening when he said he'd be eating dinner out. And now she is watching Eliminate, drinking red wine spiked with gin and is picturing hitting her only son with a golf club. She is picturing slapping him flat and hard across his face and is thinking that the sound it would make would almost make up for her worry, her inability to sleep. 
the many hundreds of dire thoughts that have torched her mind these past hours. Where is he? She doesn't even know where he would go or with whom. He's a loner. He's an eccentric. He is, she thinks, the sort of teenager who gets involved with deviants on the internet. And yet, somehow, she knows that he is safe, that he is fine, but has, for whatever reason, been unable to call, or has not even given it much thought. He is testing his boundaries, perhaps, and she will remind him of the consequences of such thoughtlessness. And when she thinks of what she will say to him and how loudly she will say it, she feels a strange kind of pleasure. The pleasure is like that enjoyed in the passionate scratching of a body overwhelmed with irritation, giving oneself up to that scratching everywhere and furious, which she did only a month earlier when she'd contracted poison oak, was the most profound pleasure she had ever known. And now, waiting for her son, and knowing how righteous will be her indignation, how richly justified will be anything she yells into his irresponsible face, she finds herself awaiting his arrival in the way the ravenous might await a meal. She is nodding her head. She is tapping her foot. She tries to order her thoughts, tries to decide where to start with him. How general should her criticisms be? Should they be specific only to this night, or should this be the door through which they pass to talk about all of his failings? Oh, the possibilities! She will have license to go anywhere, to say anything. She pours more gin into her tumbler of Merlot, and when she looks up at 2.47, his headlights are drawing chalk across the front window. This will be good, she thinks. This will be so good. It will be florid, glorious. She will scratch and scratch. She runs to the door, for she simply can't wait for it to begin. So this is also a, like one one hot headlong paragraph. Uh, I I quite uh, um, enjoy it, and you know partly I enjoy it. I uh, have not yet had the um, the pleasure of sitting up late at night waiting for teenage children to return home, but uh, I um, I can already anticipate the uh, the combination of emotions that I'm sure it will. Uh, introduced to me. Um, part of what I, I, I like about this is that it's so full of these sort of odd, um, and you know, maybe Freudian sort of contradictions or projections. Um, she's she's worried about him. Of course, her, you know, she's angry because she's worried. And she's worried that something bad could happen, that he could be hurt. And in her worry, which she she's sort of simultaneous with her worry, is this insistent thought that, of course, he's not actually hurt. And, and that, in, in fact, it's she should be angry with him and in a way the anger sort of displaces that worry so that uh her hurting him and choosing to do so and having control over it even violently horribly uh replaces the actual threat that she imagines um as if to kind of to bring it under her control um you know and the the the, the comparison to scratching an itch i think is is, is again is sort of wonderful because um it uh, you know, when she takes out her fury on her son, she will be scratching that itch. And this is, you know, we return to that image at the end. She, you know, she, um, this will be good. She thinks this will be so good. It will be florid, glorious. She will scratch and scratch the scratching. She will get to scratch her itch. But again, a scratch and an itch take place in the same body. Um, and there's this sort of suggested wish that they were in the same body again which of course they once were that this is her, the you know flesh of her flesh 
she even, um, you know, we even get the metaphor that she's, um, she finds herself awaiting his arrival in the way the ravenous might await a meal. She literally sort of imagines having him inside her again uh, as when she was pregnant. And of course she had, um, she had, uh, did have total control over him. Um, and then there's, an, I think, another kind of quite nice little um, uh, transposition, or I'm not sure exactly how to think of it, but, um, you know, her son, who's 15, who's just now tasting freedom, and he's, you know, we're told that she realizes that he's testing boundaries, he's sort of feeling out the edges of his newly discovered freedom as a, as a 15-year-old, and of course, it's when he comes home, when, you know, that freedom closes again and he kind of enters back into her orbit into her control that she feels the freedom she feels like she's the 15 year old in fact he you know Eggers even uses the word she will have license to go anywhere to say anything uh, oh the possibilities that almost you know she's running to the door as if she's the teenager getting to go out into the world to be free and have fun um and you know the language of the end she runs to the door for she simply can't wait for it to begin. It has that, has that kind of impatient, juvenile excitement to it. Um, so all you know, all that rage and love and worry and you know jealousy and nostalgia um, all gets uh, all intersects in this this one really intense and powerful and complex emotion. Um, I just think it's a really well turned little tiny story. Um, it reminded me of a. A story, another story about um, parents and punishment, but a a little bit of a sadder one, um, though it's in a story that actually ultimately has a benedictory ending. Uh, this is the story is is called Into Night, um, and it's, it's probably my favorite story from the collection, The Kind of Light That Shines on Texas. It's a short story collection by uh, Reginald McKnight. Um, He's a, uh, years and years ago, I took one class with him in college, but he, he is a really formally weird writer. And like he, he, write, he, he writes mostly stories and some novels, but um, it, it is sort of, it's impossible ever to know, even like halfway through or, or three quarters of the way through one of his stories, it's impossible to know what the rules are. Just like what the rules for reality are. Um, and it, it means that one feels really off kilter. Um, sometimes it can be a little bit corny or flat, but then I think when it works, it's pretty uh, extraordinary. Um, he won a push card a couple few years ago for, yeah, yeah, for a, a story called Float. Um, let's go. I'll see if I can find a link for it. But yeah, this, so this is, this is in a story, is the, the, um, the the narrator is a grandmother, a woman, you know, older woman who's staying. So she's living uh, with her daughter and her daughter's husband and her daughter's two children. Um, and her favorite of the two is this little boy that she calls Sandman. His name is um, his middle name is Sanders. Uh, she calls him Sandman, and Sandman is always uh, messing up. He's always misbehaving, and. Uh, we see throughout the story that the grandmother kind of is, is soft and sweet with him, and she always wants to give him, you know, give him another chance and and uh, extend extra, you know, mercy and sympathy to him. And the daughter Pauline is really, really hard on him. 
really kind of, you know, I think reading the story, our, at least my feelings were very much with the grandmother uh, up, up through this part of the story, at least. Um, as the, the sweeter, older, you know, it's easier for grandparents to be, to, um, be sweet to their grandchildren, <laughs> but, uh, but the, the, but the mother does seem kind of unduly harsh. She's, she's, um, given, uh, Sand, Sandman, uh, a couple of smacks for, for being bad earlier. And he's just made a lot of noise in his room, sort of innocently, but, um, uh, the grandmother was sort of watching and she found it amusing, but she realizes too late that his mother has also heard all of this noise. Oh, sorry, I guess, the, yeah, sorry, the, the grandmother's been listening, and then she opens the door to look. Um, uh, uh, as soon as I opened the door, I heard Pauline running back up the stairs. Reckon she wasn't in her studio at all, but in the kitchen. And since Sandman's room is right smack over the kitchen, she must have heard every sound he was making. Well, she pushed right on past me without so much as a how-do and slammed the door shut, and I heard whap, whap and it started up all over again. Lord Almighty, it was an ugly sound. I just couldn't bear to hear it. I couldn't stand there two seconds. I went to my room and closed the door, laid on my bed, pressed the heels of my hands over my ears, but I could hear every sound. I heard the boy crying, and I heard Pauline barking just like a dog. You little bastard, what I tell you, huh? Huh? Heard the sound of hangers sliding back and forth on the rod in Sandman's closet, knew she was looking for a belt. She found one too, because I heard every one of them strokes, every single one. And every now and then I heard that boy say things like, Mama, Mama, I love you, I love you. And I heard hard things hitting the floor, and I knew they was heels or elbows or knees or noggin. I knew the boy was burning up, scared, in a devil window hurt. I heard Pauline was hurting too, blind, sick, dizzy, excited, and hurting her own self. But I knew also that she didn't know it. I heard what I say and black bastard and skin you alive and don't you dare raise your hand to me. I heard please and sorry and didn't mean to and forgot to and love you mama love you. But I knew mama couldn't hear a thing but that hissing sound you hear and blood and heat and ice and nightmares and howling and the fire on her very own skin heard it, heard it not seen it, heard the flame tips of memory, and right behind it I heard the hurt of every single one of my babies, Erlene and Justine, Peter, Paul, Mark, and Julene, Perline and John, Samuel, and Pauline. Pauline. I heard my hands on Pauline, my leather on Pauline, switch cord, ruler, hanger, towel, wet and heavy, and I heard me too, my own screams, and my brothers and sisters, my mama, papa, aunts and uncles, and on back, and on back, all that sickening, hissing fire. Heard it quivering in my belly and bawling up in my throat and on back and on back. I put my pillow over my head and heard my tears soak into it. Generations and generations of slaves and slave keepers I heard. I couldn't escape that sound and I couldn't understand why. It was only now I was hearing just how terrible it is. Uh, it's, a longer, um, it's a longer passage, but... Um, yeah, it's, uh, it really turns, turns the story, um, because we've been, you know, we've been listening to the grandmother who I don't think is named, uh, in the story. We've been listening to her, 
um, interpret Pauline's behavior and, and judge Pauline and, uh, and break down kind of at a granular level all of Pauline's responses to the boy. And, and she, you know, she's, she's not an especially judgmental grandmother. She's not like the grandmother in um, uh, Good Man is Hard to Find. You know, she's, she's not outwardly critical, but we hear in her observations uh, a really keen sense of Pauline's cruelty as well as Pauline's exhilaration um, in that moment of, of being sort of justified violence. Um, and, uh, you know, and this is, of course, the, the moment when we see all of that um, put into its full context. And, that, you know, I think, and uh, this is a story, I think, that McKnight uses that, um, uses his always shifting sense of uh, the rules of reality um, to good effect. That hissing sound comes back. Uh, later on, and um, in a moment that, as I said, is it's a it's a benedictory moment. Um, I uh, I in in playing with magical realism, I um, and you know sci-fi sort of fantasy stuff. My, my kind of my my rule to myself has always been, uh, you can have you know you can have supernatural events occur they just can't and they can be meaningful and they can affect the characters but but the supernatural can't fix anyone's problems <laughs> uh and um at least in what i've read of his work um i think that that holds pretty true for for um mcknight so um i'm going to read one more shorter piece uh this is a this is a poem uh by alan Shapiro um, called Happy Hour. This um, uh, came out in a book called Happy Hour in 1987. I should say Kind of Light That Shines on Texas was published in 1992. Okay. Um, so uh, Happy Hour uh, from the book Happy Hour published in 1987. Here we are by Alan Shapiro. The gregarious dark is shifting when she puts her second drink, the free one, half on the coaster. The tipped wine poised at the brim is the beginning of the bad girl she'll promise never to be again tomorrow, who can taunt him now to prove he doesn't love her and never could. Her hand slides up his thigh until he tenses. My little prig, don't you want to fuck me? The bad girl she couldn't be at home, his wife on ice. All he can do is smile back, as though she's made a harmless, good-natured joke, and struggle not to look around to see who's heard, who's watching. He wants to smash the wine glass in her face, so he can know for once exactly what he's done wrong. But he places it instead back safely on the coaster, quickly before she sees. Never cautious enough, he is prepared even if she knocks it over, to go down on his hands and knees and wipe it up, kind and forgiving, in all ways careful to acquit himself so that tomorrow, when she says she doesn't deserve him, he's too good, he can believe her. Tomorrow will be his happy hour. There won't be anything she wouldn't do for him.
so obviously this is another poem in which we, we kind of see the uh, the role of the um, the loved one done wrong to uh, shift into a um, pleasurable malice um, at the righteousness with which uh, he can respond to his uh, his wife's bad behavior. Uh, but you know, re reading and rereading this poem, I'm um, it's funny to me how I mean I think it's clearly there's a pattern. Clearly there's behavior that uh, from both of them that that's that's been repeated many times before. This is a routine we're getting into. Uh, but in the poem itself, it is sort of striking that almost all of the conflict is anticipated. That he foresees it. This is, after all, this is her second drink. Um, right? So she's not drunk. She puts the second drink on, you know, half on the coaster so it, it almost spills. Uh, it's not because she's drunk. It's just a, it's an honest mistake. But all of this is anticipated. He knows where it's going, or he thinks he knows where it's going, um, probably with with good reason. But he's he's so ready for it all to go wrong. Um, and I'm... I'm uh, Kind of fascinated by the the language here, the beginning of the bad girl. She'll promise never to be again. And that bad girl is a kind of interesting understatement, in that it's you could imagine it being the way she would sort of mock his expectations by sort of belittling them, uh, and then you can also imagine the way that in retrospect she might. Uh, minimize her own misbehavior uh, by calling herself a bad girl. Um, but then uh, we we hear, you know, the, the next time the phrase comes up, bad girl, my little prig, don't you want to fuck me? You know, he tenses when she puts her hand on her, his thigh. This is, this is his wife, you know? There, there is some, it seems, you know, maybe she is going to be very bad, but this doesn't seem to be bad so far. She responds with, with some real bite and hostility. But then we hear that this is the bad girl she couldn't be at home, his wife on ice. And there, despite, you know, the, the on ice suggesting, again, a, you know, a drink, uh, as well as maybe um, a cadaver, uh, you know, my question is, well, well, wait, why couldn't she be that bad girl? I mean, if, if by bad girl, that means like to have sex with her husband, well, then why couldn't she be that at home? What, you know, what is it that about their marriage that makes this hard that, you know, has brought them out into public to have this little played out this little scene? Um, all he can do is smile back as though she's made a harmless, good natured joke. And there again, I think we see sort of both sides of both his, um, one might think it is a relatively harmless little joke uh, and that he's reading more into it than he might need to. But we can also imagine that these are the kinds of uh, pseudo playful, you know, ways of speaking that, that actually really abusive and horrible uh, partners often employ so that, you know, both things could be true. Maybe this is not at all a harmless joke, but she knows how to make it seem that way. And maybe he's reading more into it than he should. Um, you know, he is certainly primed. Uh, you know, the most violent image in the story comes uh, in his own fantasy of something that he would love to do, he wants to do, but he knows that he never will. 
Um, even there, you know, when he, he kind of adjusts the wine glass so it doesn't spill, um, he says, never cautious enough. He is prepared. Um, so never cautious enough, meaning, you know, he, play, uh, he places it uh, back on the coaster quickly before she sees. Never cautious enough. But, but he was cautious enough. He did put it back on the coaster before she sees. He's, he's again, he's anticipating. He's, he, he is imagining her in full bloom, so to speak, um, when she's still just barely getting started. Uh, and then I, th I, I quite like that little, that little use of the word, um, and always careful to acquit himself, uh, using that to, you know, to point to his, his good behavior, but also, uh, the, the, um, the implication of being, uh, let off the hook of being found, uh, not guilty, um, which is, which we, you know, we learn is what he sort of most relishes the being, he, he relishes the moral high ground. And that is, um, he is, uh, he is not just looking after her. He is not just fulfilling his duty. He is, um, he is savoring and setting up the real reward which will come for him tomorrow when she, um, when she openly despises herself, uh, and, and maybe validates this feeling that he's had for her all along. So that was a, um, again, a pretty, a pretty dark one. There won't be anything she wouldn't do for him. And that, I, I quite, that's actually quite nice too. That's subjunctive, right? There, there won't be anything she wouldn't do for him. It's not that there won't be anything she won't do for him, which would suggest that he would take, he'll take full, full advantage and get her to do things for him. And that that's what he relishes. No, this is, there, there won't be anything she wouldn't do for him. He's not actually going to ask her to do anything. He'll probably say, oh, no, no, don't beat yourself up. Let me get you a Gatorade. Let me get you uh, an aspirin. He doesn't want her, to, he, wasn't, he doesn't want to extract favors from her. He wants to know that he could. He wants that potential, that power, that high ground. Um, all right, uh, so that was um, Woman Waits Seething Blooming by Dave Eggers and an excerpt from Into Night by Reginald McKnight and finally Happy Hour by Alan Shapiro. Uh, this is Slee Ricketts. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, my wife, I learned, has taken to checking on the uh, Apple Podcasts uh, ratings of the show. So if you want to, um, uh, you know, if you put a good rating on there, um, uh, five stars if you want to make her day, or one star if you want to uh, ruin my day. <laughs> But either way, uh, thank you for listening. I do appreciate it. And if you have anything you'd like to say, like, for example, why is this episode so fucking long? <laughs> or bring back uh, Tracy O'Day instead. Uh, then please write to sleericketts at gmail.com. I think I'm going to have another interview coming up for you. And I might, I, I have a, a little um, a little extra. I think I might kind of drop midweek as a bonus. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how I'm feeling about that. But something to look forward to. And uh, with any luck, I will be speaking to you again before too long. Until then.